0: and As the church, man, we should be on the forefront yes. of making disciples, of indoctrination, and in godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh oh. Uh oh. Well, greetings, everyone. This is once again guest host, guest host for airing the Addisons, Doctor Matt Ayers, President of Wesley Biblical Seminary, and it's good to be back with you today. Uh, Today, what I'd like to talk about is a bit, just a bit about the Holy Spirit, or what we say, what we call in our seminaries, the technical term for this is pneumatology, the study or thought regarding the Holy Spirit. Um, for those of you who may not know, uh, just a few weeks ago I had a new book that came out, An Introduction to the Holy Spirit. It's, for, it's a balanced and biblically rooted, very accessible, just a, an entry-level book on understanding um, an orthodox perspective, that is, a, a, the perspective according to mere Christianity, historical, classical, apostolic Christianity, a perspective on the Holy Spirit, published by Seedbed. And so um, what I want to do in, in our time together today is talk about um, how the Holy Spirit relates to the law in the Old Testament. And I want to uh, make our point of departure for the discussion, Acts chapter 2, the first four verses or so. And so uh, let's go there together. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. This is Acts chapter 2, verses one To four, it says this: When the day of Pentecost arrived, there were all together. They were all together in one place, and suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's a lot happening in this short section of Scripture, just these four verses, a little uh, pericope here, and I want to focus on one particular phrase in the first verse, when the day of Pentecost arrived. What we learn from this phrase is that the day in which God the Father, through the Son, fulfills His promise of pouring out the Spirit of God on all flesh is the day of Pentecost. It's the day not only of this newly established Christian celebration festival that we typically know today as Christians as Pentecost, the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 50 days after Easter, which is where that word Pentecost comes from. It just means 50 in Greek. But this is not just a Christian celebration that started on this day. The celebration of Pentecost is something that finds its origins in the Old Testament, which is why on this day we find the disciples, on whom the Holy Spirit has been poured out, speaking in other languages— We find them speaking in other languages because this festival required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate for Old Testament believers, for the Jews, for the Hebrew people. There were three pilgrimage festivals, according to the Old Testament. They are first, Passover, second, Pentecost, and third, the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And Pentecost goes by another name. It's also known as uh, the Feast of Weeks. So if Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Booths. And these three pilgrimage festivals built into the Jewish calendar, beginning with the Exodus, after their deliverance from Egyptian slavery, required them to travel to Jerusalem, th- Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate. And so we have Jews from the Diaspora, is what we call them, or at least for those who have been dispersed across various geographical regions around the Mediterranean, the ancient Mediterranean. Jews speaking different languages all gathered together in Jerusalem for the celebration of this pilgrimage festival. Again, that word pilgrimage just means you have to travel to celebrate it. And in in Hebrew, the term here is foot festival. That is, you have to travel by foot, or at least travel to get there to celebrate. This is not something that you could just celebrate in your homes, like on Sabbath, where you were. No, you have to all gather together. These are also called the ingathering festivals. So that's why we have people here in Jerusalem, Jerusalem who are speaking foreign languages, is because they had to travel from abroad to Jerusalem to celebrate this very important festival of Pentecost. So... It's very interesting, then, that it's on this day of this Jewish festival of Pentecost that God the Father, through the Son, fulfills the promise of pouring out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. We know this day of Pentecost as the birthday of the Church. This is the day in which the Church was born. It's interesting that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in all of their wisdom and providence, and their omniscience, knowledge of all things, in planning out the day, what day are we going to choose to pour out the Holy Spirit on all people? They chose this day of Pentecost. They didn't choose to choose Passover. They didn't choose the feast of we- the feast of Booths or the feast of Tabernacles. They chose Pentecost. And the question then is why? What does the Holy Spirit coming? have to do with the celebration of Pentecost in the Old Testament? Because in the Old Testament, Pentecost wasn't the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it was the celebration of something entirely different. The question is, what did Pentecost celebrate in the Old Testament? Well, to frame this, first we can consider what the festival of Passover celebrated, the three pilgrimage festivals, right? And each of the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, were all associated with two different things. One, the agricultural calendar, and two, deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And so at Pentecost, or excuse me, at Passover, Passover has two different ways of relating to it. One is the agricultural way. This is the starting of the harvest of barley, But as relates to deliverance from Egyptian slavery, the feast of the pilgrimage festival of Passover was a commemoration or remembrance of the event of the Passover lamb being sacrificed so as to preserve the firstborn male from the angel of death as the last plague to free Israel from the grip of Pharaoh. And so as they celebrate Passover, yes, there's this agricultural dynamic, but there's also this religious or theological dynamic of remembering God's rescue. And so they go through the motions of celebrating Passover by having a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, and by having a meal together, reliving that moment where the angel of death would have passed over their homes because the blood of the lamb would have been spread above the door, the entry place of the house. And the imagery that we have here is that the angel of death was sent out from heaven to kill the firstborn male, but as he came to the the homes of the Hebrew people, to see blood on the doorpost, they would have, the angel of death, death would have seen that a substitute was given on behalf of the firstborn. Death has already visited this house but in on the lamb and, and substitute for as a substitute for in place of the firstborn. And so the angel of death then would not enter in. And of course, we know this as Christians, that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus's substitutionary death on our behalf. Right? And we could talk more about the deeper theology of atonement and substitutionary atonement and what the New Testament teaches us about Jesus as the true fulfillment of the Passover. But our focus today isn't the Passover, it's Pentecost. But before we get to Pentecost, let me talk about the other pilgrimage festival, which is the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. The festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, on an agricultural level, was the celebration of the first fruits of the fruit harvest. You have the grain harvest in uh, summertime, and you have the fruit harvest in the fall. And so they would celebrate, according, this is what Scripture tells us, this is not just extra-biblical, this is the Bible itself, tells, God instructs the people of God to celebrate the fruit harvest by observing the Feast of Booths, But also they celebrated the Feast of Booths to commemorate the time in which the ancient Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And constructing these little booths, or also known as these little tabernacles, was a reminder of God's provision for the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. And so every year God commanded them, you've got to go and you've got to build these tabernacles and you've got to live in them for about a week or so just to remember what your ancestors went through and to be reminded of the fact that God provided for your ancestors and will therefore provide for you during these desert moments of your life's journey. And so we have this dual-level interpretation of the Feast of Tabernacles, just like we have for Passover, the agricultural, and then the celebration as relates to deliverance from Egyptian slavery. So now the question that we come to is, what is Pentecost all about then? Well, on the agricultural level, Pentecost is the beginning of the wheat harvest, which would have began 50 days or seven weeks, seven times 749, we round up to 50, 50 days after the Passover. That was the instruction uh, that God gave Israel in the Pentateuch. But what does the celebration of Pentecost commemorate with regard to deliverance from Egyptian slavery? Pentecost is the commemoration of the giving of the law at Sinai. And so when they celebrate Pentecost, when they were coming together in Jerusalem on this day, this day that the Holy Spirit was given to them... They are celebrating many, many years prior to this, and we can say approximately 1,500 years. It's hard to date the Exodus, but most scholars would say it's either the 13th century or the 16th century B.C., but let's say they're commemorating something that happened around 1,500 years ago— And that was the giving of the law at Sinai. You remember the story, if you know your Old Testament, where Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days, and he fasts from food and water, and while on the mountaintop, God transmits to him the law, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Torah. And this is what they're celebrating, the giving of the law. Now, here's where the link occurs between the law and the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, on the day of Pentecost, God gave his people the law. And then on Pentecost in the New Testament, God gives his people the Holy Spirit. Just by observing that very reality, we can see that there is a direct link between the law in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament they must have something in common, the law and the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do for the rest of our time together is expound upon the commonalities between the law in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And we can say, as a point of summation, as a point of summary that ultimately we're going to get into some more of the details about what the law and the holy spirit have in common but ultimately the law and the holy spirit accomplish the exact same thing but in two different contexts and we're going to touch on that thing that the, the major thing the main point of connection between the law and the holy spirit what is the big thing that they're accomplishing each one in an old testament sense one in the New Testament sense. We'll touch on that when we come back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Matt Ayers with you from Wesley Biblical Seminary, guest hosting for Airing the Addisons. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit today. And we're discussing the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon believers according to Acts chapter 2 on the celebration of Pentecost, during the celebration of Pentecost, one of the three pilgrimage festivals that we find out more about in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, on the day of Pentecost, the God, God gave the law through Moses to Israel on Mount Sinai. And so that tells us that there's some sort of link or connection between the law and of the Old Testament on the one hand, and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament on the other hand. And just before our break, I was saying there's one big thing they have in common, but there's a few other things that we want to detail out as well. And the question is, what is the one big thing that the law and the Holy Spirit have in common? And it's this, they mark off the people of God for the world to see and to witness. Now, I want to explore that. I'll say it again, but I want to explore that in a little bit more detail The law and the Holy Spirit both. The law in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament have the same function. They both mark off the people of God for the world to be able to see and identify. Think of the law and the Holy Spirit both as the badge of God's people. And even the Apostle Paul called the Holy Spirit the seal of God's people, the mark of Of God's people. We know in the book of Revelation that God marks off his people, and he writes his name on their foreheads and on their right hands. And we understand this mark to be complete devotion to God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at some more nuance with this. What are some other things working towards this idea of the law and the Holy Spirit as the mark of the people of God in the world? What are some other things that the law and the holy spirit have in common? Well, one of the big things that the law and the holy spirit have in common is that both reveal sin. They both identify sin. Now, this is this is an interesting concept. We find this in Paul's writings, specifically in Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about how sin or excuse me, how the law draws forth sin. Out of our members. Paul also talks in Galatians about the law as a tutor that leads us to Christ. So the law reveals or eliminates sin, or, or excuse me, illuminates, <laughs> reveals or illuminates sin. It shows us where sin is, and as does the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to send to you a helper, and he will convict the world of sin. That is, he will reveal sin to the world. We also know that the Holy Spirit sanctifies the church, sanctifies believers. And a part of that sanctification process is convicting us of sin, revealing areas of sin in our lives. But let's look in a little more detail about how the law reveals sin. Paul says in Romans that before the law was given, there was no accounting for sin. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden for just a moment. We know that that eating of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, is a sin. And we only know that, and Adam and Eve only knew that, because God gave them a law telling them that. He says, you may eat of all the trees, but you can't eat of this one. And that's the law of God. God gives them instruction. He gives them a law. Don't eat of this tree. And that law then identifies what sin is. Sin would be rebellion against God, doing that which is contrary to God's instruction, and eating of the tree. Now, let's look. That's just one, like the first example of the law identifying what sin would be. But we can look then, of course, to the ultimate example of the law in the, in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament, and that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, that is, the law, reveal to us what sin is. It would be sin to have another God before God. It would be a sin to make idols. It would be a sin to not honor mother and father. It would be a sin to not obey the Sabbath or observe the Sabbath. It would be a sin to murder, to bear false witness, to covet, so on and so forth. So the law, then, in the form of Ten Commandments, reveals what sin is. Now, let's go a little bit further still in this idea, because sin is a really, really devious thing. Sin likes to stay hidden. Sin lives and thrives in the dark. Sin does not want to be revealed. And so the law then, in coming in, revealing sin, is helpful to us. As as sin likes to remain hidden... The result of that reality is oftentimes that we have a misunderstanding of sin or a misdiagnosis of sin. I find that most of the time when I talk to average, you know, the average Christians in the pew, and I was this way for a long time, so I'm, I'm a part of that group, I thought of sin strictly as thing doing things that we ought not to do. And we call those sins of commission doing things that we ought not to do. So when in the Ten Commandments, when God says, for example, don't commit murder, if we're to commit murder, that's a sin of commission. We're doing things we ought not to do. He says don't lie or bear false witness. So when we bear false witness, we're doing something we ought not to do. When we commit idolatry, we're doing something God instructs us not to do. When Adam and Eve in the garden eat of the tree— They're doing something that God instructs them they ought not to do. This is called a sin of commission. And my thinking about sin and my definition of sin was really quite limited to that kind of sin, a sin of commission. But if we pay even closer attention, as the law helps us by revealing sin, we can see that sin is more than just sins of commission. There are also what's called sins of omission. That is, when we fail to do what we ought to do, and that's a whole other category of sinning. We can look again to the Ten Commandments as an example of this. One of the commandments, the fourth, says, observe the Sabbath. Well, when we fail to observe the Sabbath, then we are committing a sin. So it's not something we're doing that we ought not to. It's something that we're failing to do that we ought. The same would be true of the command to honor your father and your mother. When we fail to do that, we're sinning. So it's not something that we do that we ought not to, it's something we're failing to do that we ought. The book of James, I think it's chapter 4 verse 7 says when we when we don't do what we ought to do, it is considered a sin. There's lots of these sorts of things, commands in the New Testament that Jesus gives us. For example, Jesus says All authority has been given unto me. This is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He gives us a command. And when we fail to carry out that command, it's a sin because we're not doing what we ought to do. Tithing is something God commands us to do. When we fail to do that, we're sinning. Here's a simpler one. Loving our neighbor loving our enemies, forgiving people. When we fail to do those things that Jesus commands us to do, we are sinning. So sins of not just commission, but we also know that there are sins of omission. And we know this because we've been given a law. The law details these things. So we have sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of omission. But sin extends yet even further than this, and the law helps us to understand this. Sins of commission and sins of omission are narrowed to the category of behavior, but we can sin in other sorts of categories, for example, that, that, that's beyond behavior. Our thoughts can be sinful. Jesus says, you've heard it said to you, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who even lusts after a woman in his heart. Well, this is a thought. This is not a behavior. This is our thinking that can be sinful. Thou shall not covet. Well, that's an emotion, a desire, a desire for something that God has not allocated to you. And so not only can our behaviors be offensive to God, what we do, what we fail to do, Our thoughts can be offensive to God, and our emotions can be offensive to God. Be angry, but do not sin, right? And there are others. Some of us know, especially if you have a teenager in your home, that there are people that I like to call happy-sad, meaning they like to be sad. They like to be mopey. Well, the Scriptures tell us that we are to be witnesses and bear and embody the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and kindness, right? And so when we're moping about all the time, we have emotions that are offensive to God and contrary to the emotions that He's commanded us to have. Now, this is a tricky one because oftentimes we think that emotions are just Natural, and if they're natural, they must be right. And if they're also natural, there's nothing we can do to control them. And this is where, of course, the doctrine of new birth or regeneration is the antidote to this issue. Well, I can't control my emotions, I can't control when I'm sad. And this is the result of being enslaved to the sin condition, what Paul calls the flesh in the New Testament in the book of Romans we're enslaved we get in enra- how can i how can i stop coveting it's just this natural desire how can i stop lusting it's just this natural desire and this is where we acknowledge our complete and utter dependence on Jesus and the Holy Spirit to to bear in us to generate inside of us holy emotions where The emotion of sadness can be replaced with joy, and it is a joy, again, of the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here and talking about some of the antidotes to the issue of sin. But what I'm pointing out is that the law in revealing sin reveals to us that it's not just behavior, sins of commission, sins of omission, that are sinful, offensive to God, but also our thoughts, our emotions. And I, I can go one further. Our attitudes can be sinful as well. And these three link up thoughts, emotions and attitudes because attached to thoughts, attached to thoughts are emotions. And when those emo- thoughts stay around and we keep entertaining them in our minds, those emotions stay around. We all know that emotions are attached to thoughts. You ever like subconsciously or without particularly focused attention have a thought run through your mind and all of a sudden you feel worried? Or all of a sudden you feel sad and you go, wait a minute, why am I feeling worried or sad? What thought brought that to me? And you kind of have to trace it down because it sort of happens subconsciously sometimes. And you realize that you thought of something that you didn't mean to think of that brought this spirit or emotion of worry or anxiety or angst to you. And then when we keep those thoughts and those motions around and they set a limb, those are what become or the origin of our overall attitude or mood, right? And our moods can be sinful. The Bible says that God's people should have a joyful countenance that we should wear, visibly wear for the world to see the joy of the Spirit and the peace of God in our very presence. And we see examples of this certainly in Scripture. The big one is Moses when he would meet with God in the tabernacle face to face, he'd come out glowing. We also see this in Psalm 133 and now there's a little bit more explanation that's required there, but that psalm talks about that when brothers and sisters dwell in harmony, they drip with oil, like oil's running down the hair and the beard of Aaron, the priest. And this oil, which is a sign of the Holy Spirit, is shiny. It glows. It shows a joyful presence and a presence that is delightful, a a, a joyful countenance that's delightful to God. And so thanks to the law, You know, our sin wants to stay hidden. We want to think that sin is normal, that it's not a disease, because it's where we see we see sin everywhere in the world. And so we encounter it in ourselves and think this is the norm. And the law comes along and says, No, that is not supposed to be the norm. That is a diseased condition. The law for us then reveals sin. Now, so far, I'm talking about sins plural that the law reveals. The law reveals sins of commission, sins of omission, our thoughts are sin, can be sinful, our emotions can be sinful, our attitudes can be sinful, and we can sin against God in, in, in a multiplicity of ways because of these categories. But yet there's another dynamic of sin that the law also reveals, and that is the sinful nature, our sinful Condition, our diseased nature, the law. So this and this is one hundred percent Romans chapter seven. This is what Romans chapter seven Paul is talking about there when he says, "I know what's good and I want to do what's good, but I can't." And the the sin that has embedded itself inside of my very being, my sarks—the Greek word for my flesh—it is enlivened by the law. And even though I know it's good and I know I should do X, I can't. And I do why. And he expresses this sort of exasperation over being enslaved to sin. And so the law then doesn't just realize all these different sins that we commit, or all these different behaviors, attitudes, emotions, thoughts that we have that are offensive to God. But the law also reveals to us, as it shows us what our sins are, it reveals to us this reality we can't help but sin. There's nothing we can do about it. And of course, this is a part of what we talk about when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity. So the law doesn't just reveal sins, plural, it reveals sin, singular, the diseased condition. Now, this reality is going to draw us into the New Testament and Christ is the antidote. That's what we're going to touch on when we come back right after this. Welcome back, everyone. This is Matt Ayers with you. You're a guest host for airing the Addisons, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. Listen, if you like the kind of content that you're hearing, uh, visit us, wbs.edu, wbs.edu. We offer audit courses for anyone. Remember that seminary is not just for your pastors. We have what's called Wesley Institute, where we will walk you over a nine-month program through the entire Bible with seminary professors. Uh, We'll also walk you through Christian theology with seminary professors to help you go deeper in your theological knowledge, help you be more effective at defending the faith, understanding church history. We'll just scratch on some of the topics that our degree-seeking students will study in the halls of this seminary. So check us out, wbs.edu. One thing I want to tell you about, I'm teaching uh, the Book of Psalms starting August 14th. It's a 15-week course, two hours a week. It's live Zoom. It's also recorded. You can watch it later. Come audit the class with us. It's a live interaction time uh, with me, and we will look at the Book of Psalms in a way I promise you've never looked at the Book of Psalms before. All right, so moving forward, we're talking about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the law and we said that the holy spirit and the law both reveal sin and then we kind of took a bit of a dive on what sin is we talked about sins of commission things we do that we do that we ought not to things of sins of omission things that we don't do that we ought we also said that the law reveals that our our thoughts can be sinful attitudes can be sinful and our emotions can be sinful But we also said, as we moved into our break, the last thing we said is that the law also reveals that there's this other dynamic to sin, that sin isn't just these behaviors. Sin is deeply embedded in our nature. The law reveals that not only are we sinners, but that we have a sinful nature. And I said this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, that we're enslaved to sin, even when the law reveals to us. The way to behave, the way to think, the way to feel that honors God, God's original design for you and I as his image bearers, when we know it's been laid out plainly before us in the law, we can't do it. And then Paul says in Galatians that the law is a custodian leading us to Jesus, and this is exactly how, this is exactly how the law leads us to Jesus. Without the law, we wouldn't know that sin is so deeply embedded in us that we're enslaved to it. And it brings us to the place of acknowledgement that we need an external Savior, that we cannot be saved in and of ourselves. We can't lift ourselves up by the bootstraps, because even when something good and godly and holy and pure like the Word and the law of God comes along, we find that sin becomes alive, enlivened in the members of our flesh. And it makes us, like Paul in Romans 7, say, what can I do? How can I be delivered from this body of sin and death? So without the law, we wouldn't know. We would fail to acknowledge that we have need for rescue. And that's where he says, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And he moves into Romans chapter 8, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And yes, he's talking about condemnation from the guilt of sin. Jesus has washed away the guilt of sin. We are declared innocent. But he's also talked about freedom from the power of sinning because of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, the law reveals sin. The law guides us to Jesus. And likewise, the Holy Spirit reveals sin. As I said, Jesus says, I will send you a helper, an advocate, a paraclete, one who will come alongside of you, and he will convict the world of sin. But here's the thing. Here's the key difference. One of the key differences between the law and the Holy Spirit. The law is external. The Holy Spirit is internal. The law simply reveals sin to us, but the Holy Spirit reveals sin to us by convicting us of sin, but also empowers us to overcome that sin. He is the igniting fire The presence of Christ within, the same way that the Holy Spirit inspired Jesus' very obedience to God the Father, so he inspires and is the source of strength and purity for us to obey the law of God as is written on our hearts. And so there's a key difference between the Holy Spirit and the law. Both reveal sin, but the Holy Spirit is internal, the law is external, the Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome sin, the law simply identifies it. So, Pentecost, the law and the Holy Spirit are linked. But there's a, couple, there's a few more things here we need to touch on. The law and the Holy Spirit don't simply reveal sin. They also reveal the people of God to the world. So think for a moment with me, for those of you who may be familiar, how would you identify an Orthodox Jew or a Hasidic Jew today? Well, usually a number of things. How they dress, with whom they associate or don't associate or with what they eat or don't eat. So we all know, no shellfish, no pork, no unclean animals. And also, growing the sides of the hair long, wearing a hat, specifically for men. their specific dress code. Why do they dress and eat this way? Because the law instructs them to dress and eat this way. And their obedience to the law then becomes an outward sign of their membership as people of God. How does the world know who the people of God are? It's the people who bear the mark of the law externally. So the Holy Spirit accomplishes much the same thing in the New Testament, where the law reveals the people of God to the world through their obedience to the law. Likewise, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the mark of the Christian. In the New Testament, how do you know who a Christian is? Is it by their diet, what they eat? Well, Paul says no in the book of Galatians. Jesus declared all foods clean. You remember the story of Peter eating on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner? And he says, take up and eat. He says, Lord, I can't do that. I've never eaten unclean things. Is that which I have declared clean is clean indeed. And so Jesus abolishes food laws. So Christians aren't identified by our diets. What about how we dress or how we grow our hair? No, that's not how Christians are identified. So what is... The mark of the law in the Old Testament is how people what they eat and how they dress, but what's the mark of the people of God in the New Testament? The presence of the Holy Spirit. The great mark of the Spirit is love. You know a Christian by their love, their love for Jesus, their love for one another, and their love for even their enemies. Jesus says, the world will know that you are mine because you will love one another another. And there are other places that affirm the same view, especially in the first letter of John. He who says he is in Christ but does not love or hates his brother is still in darkness. This is also a part of what's happening in the theology and the message behind Psalm 133, and again, many other places in Scripture. And so, in the same way that the law reveals the people of God to the world in the Old Testament, so the Holy Spirit reveals who God's people are in the New Testament. But the New Testament mark of God's people is conformity to the image of Jesus, and namely, his unconditional love for the world. Jesus performed a number of miracles. And many people believed in him to be the Son of God and Messiah because of those miracles. Nicodemus says, we know you're from God because of the great things that you're able to do. And others say, he walks on water, he casts out demons, he has an authority that the Pharisees don't have. He must be the one that we're waiting for. He turns water to wine. I remember when Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples say, who is this man, right? So he performs these miracles that indicate who he is. But the greatest sign of Jesus' identity as the eternally begotten Son of God and the Son of Man, that is, humans as they were always intended to be, as God's image bearers, the perfect imprint of the nature of God, the greatest sign... Is his death and his resurrection. And his death, Jesus says, What greater love is there than this than one who gives his lays down his own life for his friends? And we can add to that for his enemies. While we were yet sinners and enemies of God, he died for us, took on our penalty, died on our behalf. And so the Holy Spirit then deposits, inspires, animates, enlivens, invigorates, generates a holy love of God in the heart of the believer and is the same love that drove Jesus to the cross, sacrificing himself for even his enemies. And so the Holy Spirit, through the process then of regeneration and sanctification in the life of the believer, is conforming us to the image of Christ And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know that I belong to him because of my death, my burial, and my resurrection. That is my love as manifest in those acts. And likewise, the church. How is the world going to know who the church is? Their conformity to the image of Christ, a love of God that is steadfast and unconditional and merciful and kind and meek and poor of spirit. So, The Holy Spirit accomplishes in the New Testament the same thing the law accomplishes in the Old, marking off the people of God. But the mark is a little different. Actually, it's a lot different. The mark of the people of God in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a final way for us to think about these these dynamics of the Holy Spirit and the law, their relationship to one another. So in the Old Testament, God gave the law. He wrote his commands on tablets of stone. And we know that the commands of God are a profile of who he is, right? We can just observe the sorts of things that he commands and draw conclusions about who he is. So when he says, you know, be faithful, don't commit adultery, that tells us that he is a faithful God and loves faithfulness. And when he says, honor your father and mother, it tells us that he likes to lift up the sanctity uh, and the holiness of life as manifests inside of the family. When he says, don't muzzle the ox... While he treads, he's compassionate and suffers with those who suffer. When he says, leave the edges of your field for the orphans and the widows, don't collect it all, be generous, again, that tells us of his compassion. When he says, forgive one another, that tells us he's merciful. And so the commands that God gives, the commands that Jesus gives us are a profile of who he is. It's a picture of God's ethics, his morality. It tells us who he is. And so when he writes his, tab- his, his commands on tablets of stone, he's writing a picture of himself on those tablets of stone. But then in the New Testament, on the same cell of the celebration of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And in the Old Testament at Pentecost, God wrote His law, that is, His, His, a profile, a picture of who He is on tablets of stone. But in the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost, God writes the picture of who He is on the tablet of the human heart. And that is a metaphor, a symbol for a radical transformation of our very nature. This is another way in of talking about what it means to be a Christian as not being merely forgiven of our sins. That's a part of it. But rather a radical transformation of our very nature, being free not just from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sinning. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 14, 15, 16 says this. For by a single offering he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds." and here he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 33 verse excuse me chapter 31 verse 33 this is what god promised in the old testament and this is what happens on the day of pentecost the profile the picture of who god is written on the hearts of believers this means that believers bear the image of god in the world they are jesus the body of Christ. When I say they are Jesus, I don't mean that we are fully God, fully man, right Christology. I'm saying that we are the bride of Christ. We are one flesh with him, the whole symbol of communion and the Eucharist. And this, of course, to go yet even further, is the fulfillment of God's purposes from humanity from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, where he says, "'Let us create man and woman in our image.'" And when our nature becomes diseased by sin so that we become selfish instead of selfless, the image of God is failed to be displayed within the world. But by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the picture of God being written on the hearts of human beings, the image of God, God's glorifiers, those who magnify him in the creation is restored and his redemptive purposes are fulfilled the Holy Spirit, and the law, the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, and the simple fact that to be a Christian is going beyond being delivered from the guilt of sin, but also being delivered from the power of sinning. Thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Dr. Matt Ayers with Wesley Biblical Seminary, guest host for airing the Addisons. God bless.